Welcome to Improv Interviews. This is Margot Escott, and today I have a really exciting guest, Asiel Romanelli, a social worker in Jerusalem, Israel. And he has written a fabulous paper on his work teaching therapists how to use improv. Hello. Hello. Shalom. Shalom. I'm so honored to have you and to finally be able to arrange these time zones. We, we met, yes. I think, through Daniel Weiner. And, That's right. Uh, we're, I'm so excited. We're both going to be presenting at a conference in Chicago in September. That's right. I'm, I'm also very excited. It's the first mental health improv workshop, so it's conference, so it's going to be excellent. So let's talk a little bit about how you got into improv and psychology and your life story. And so I, yeah. I was going to say, in five minutes. No, I'm just joking. We have plenty of time. Okay. So it also, I mean, I started in informal education, experiential education, and um, I was never really into the arts as a kid or even in high school. I mean, played a little bit of guitar. And then when I, uh, after I served in the Army and backpacked a little bit in South America, I thought I was going to study acting in New York. That never happened. I ended up doing my undergrad in behavioral sciences. And on the side, I joined the university dance troupe, uh, which was the first time I ever did dance, studying ballet and stuff, and that was great. And then I started doing, taking acting classes for the first time, not realizing that actually what I was taking is playback theater um, acting classes. Let me say something about playback theater because it's going to be a very integral part of my story. So for those listeners who don't know what it is, um, playback theater is a form of improvised theater based on people's stories. So somebody will come on stage and tell a real-life story, first person, yeah, his or, his or her stories, and we'll play it back to them, hence the word playback. Okay, and Margo, feel free if you want me to explain more about that later. Sure. So, so that, I did that. Yeah, that's very similar to an exercise I've done many times with doing monologues from real life, just taking a word exactly. and doing a real life. Yeah. Exactly. And then I, after I finished my undergrad, I went to London for two and a half years to work with the Jewish community there. and. During the night, they started just doing drop-in improv classes, you know, just short form. And then from there, I got into long form, also in music and contact improvisation, which is a form of improvised dance. And then I joined a professional playback theater company there. At that point, it was still on the side. Improv was on the side for me, like a hobby. And then when I came back to Israel, I decided to do my uh, master's in clinical social work. And on the side, I took a psychodrama training. Now, toward the end of the master's program, I fell in love with couple and family therapy, or marriage and family therapy, the way you call it in the States. And I started practicing, and then I started on the side teaching um, playback theater and improvisation for a couple, another couple of years. And then something interesting happened. I was working in the public sector as a couple and family therapist, and the people around me, the therapists around me were burning out, were getting frustrated, and not having fun and just slowly just burning out and leaving the leaving the station and i didn't understand why and the more i thought about it the more i realized that something in my improv training helped me see the the therapeutic encounter the improvisational encounter something exciting and i thought i could i saw that i brought more and more of myself whereas when i watched my colleagues i'd see that they were outside of the clinic they were very colorful um varied people but inside the room they would be, they'd be very dull shallow one-dimensional mm -hmm. 
repressed, mm -hmm. um, almost, almost like with a facade on their face of trying to be this neutral, important, high-status therapist. And then um, I started thinking about that, and ironically, I was doing reserve service, and then I met a guy, and he was doing his postdoc, and he said, you know, I, had, I told him I had this funny idea, how about improv for therapists? And then he said, who cares? <laughs> and he said, if you're, if you're that interested, why don't you write something about it? And then uh, I thought, well, that's a good idea. And then I just literally, I did Google Scholar, and I wrote improvisation and therapy. And that just started the ball rolling, and I started writing. And in Israel, it's very, very hard to get into the doctoral program. Plus, there's no scholarships. Mind you, we start our undergrad at 22, 23. So by the time we're finished with graduate school, we're almost 30. Yeah? Wow. So I was already 31 at the time, 32. And so at that time, I was teaching Quebec theater. I had my own professional company, and I was doing therapy. Again, these were two separate fields for me, two separate hats almost like two separate identities. And it took me a year to find a supervisor. And then what I thought is I want to I wanna make improv a legit, a legitimate um, field, a legitimate training for therapists. And I started just reading everything I could about improv and therapy. And I, from there, I slowly built an improvisation course called Improv for Therapists, a semester-long academic research experiential learning course. And I ended up teaching that for three years. And I took measurements, quantitative and qualitative. Quantitative meaning um, number, like questionnaires and numbers, statistics. And qualitative is I interviewed the alumni three months after they finished the course to see what's left, what actually impacted their clinical work. And I purposely chose to work with social workers and not with art therapists because uh, uh, creative art therapies in Israel is huge. And mm -hmm. I felt like they're very connected to improv. I actually wanted to tackle more mainstream, um, traditional psychotherapies, psychotherapists, and I chose to really go into the, the social work school to the graduate program. And I spent three years teaching it, and then another two years analyzing the data. And first of all, I just had to say it, it was really hard to get into university because improv for therapists sounds very hippie, sounds mm -hmm, very mm -hmm. uh, lazy fair. Um, what's, the, what's the point? This is a cute idea. I didn't, nobody took me really seriously. and. And unfortunately, even after I finished it, when I, when I you know, offered my services as a paid uh, t teacher, they refused. They didn't think it was worth the funding. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll fast forward to the results. I mean, you can read, you know, the one paper has been published, two more are under review. So hopefully it will all be published soon. I'm, I'm, please contact me and I'll happy to, I'm happy to send sure. you an email. But the, what we found is that um, therapists who undertook this training reported higher levels of flexibility, um, um, vitality, enjoyment, and a, and a concept called therapeutic presence. Therapeutic presence is um, being in the session with an open mind, open heart, in the here and now, grounded yet open. Um, so that's one major result we found. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's great because yeah. too often you mentioned the status and too often I think the therapist sees themselves as you know more powerful than the person they're treating, and I kind of like to see us as equals on the same path. They're bringing to me, I'm bringing to them, but not yeah, there, not that stern parent or whatever, like a Freudian. Yeah, is there any is there anything more co you know collaborative than an improvised dialogue? I mean, that's what it's about. And and what was really interesting is that data actually got 
we, we triangulated the, the, the statistics with the interviews. So we got that also from their, like from their experience and also we compared them to a control group of the same cohort that didn't take the course. So we could even get hard data and showing the people that didn't take this training reported lower levels of flexibility and presence following the course, mm -hmm. which is really exciting because now you, like, as much as you can prove something in statistics, it's, it's almost like it's, you can show that it actually, improv training does have an effect. And another article, uh, which will be published soon, is talking about when I interviewed them, I, I try to really get the, the second by second moments of those improvisational moments, what we call now moments. In therapy, mm -hmm. now moments is the aha moments, is those moments where some, there's a rupture in the, in the field between the therapist and the client. And then the, there's the rupture and then there's the repair. And what happens in those moments? And we try to compare those with current um, concepts of peak human experiences. So there's the Csikszentmihalyi idea of, is, am I talking too fast, Margo? No, but I'm wondering if you can give a more concrete example of an aha moment using improv, if you can think of it. So a... for instance, um, there was one therapist who, uh, she, was, she was describing uh, couples therapy and the couple was fighting and fighting and she kept trying to interfere until a certain point, spontaneously, she stood up and told the people to shut up. <laughs> okay, now this was something, and this is a very timid um, religious girl, young, 24, 25, and she said, I, I would have never planned it, it just happened. I couldn't believe it. I, I suddenly saw myself standing up, yelling, and she describes it second to second. And, and what we've realized is, so, so, so we took a lot of these little moments, mm -hmm. or a moment where... Um, there was a girl, a teenage girl in therapy, and she said, I want to watch TV, I want to watch TV, I want to watch TV, and suddenly the therapist said, fine, let's do it. Let's just click down the TV. Right. Um, again, which was unorthodox, mm -hmm. you know, that was not traditional. She wasn't planning to do that. Or a Palestinian therapist who, uh, she was talking to this woman who said, I don't feel beautiful, I don't feel beautiful, and she found herself suddenly singing the Christina Aguilera, I'm so beautiful song. Wonderful. So I, love all, I love it. I love it. These are all examples yeah. of these suddenly, these now moments that change the field between therapist and client. Um, mind you that after every one of these instances, the whole energy shifted. So what we did is we asked those people, describe to me what happened in your mind and in your heart and in your body before, during, and right after. And we tried to realize, so what's healing about those moments? What happens in those moments? And can we describe them with concepts? So the three concepts we, we please ask me if I'm going too fast. Let me know, okay, Margo? No, you're I'm, you're just I'm, fine. Okay, I've been I've, I'm, I've been chewing this stuff for five years, so it's so the three concepts we, we were comparing it to. One was flow by Csikszentmihalyi. Flow is when the challenge is the same level as the skill. Imagine riding a bicycle in a beautiful park mm -hmm. where you're just enjoying yourself, okay? A peak experience is um, like an out-of-body, uh, one-with-universe experience, like um, uh, sitting on top of a mountain after you climb it, and there's a moment where you're like, wow, we're giving birth, or, you know, all those moments. Mm -hmm. And the third kind of moment is peak performance, which comes more from sports, you know, when time slows down and you're effortlessly, effortly just, you know, perfectly, or you're sewing and you're just in the groove. And what we discovered, which was really interesting, is that those moments, which I chose to call improvisation, in my experience, when I'm improvising, we called it I'm, like I apostrophe, yeah, mm -hmm. improvisation. Uh -huh. 
So the improvisation experience is kind of a combination between flow and peak experience. But there's one more thing that, that came up again and again in the interviews, which is kind of like a, a liminal communitas feeling. And communitas means of equal status. Suddenly there's like this affinity, this closeness, mm -hmm. this kind of like shedding of the status and the, and the hierarchies that they felt in those specific moments which I think a lot of the imp improvisers listening to this podcast know how that feels. Yeah, there's a term I use called mind meld. And we're, already, we're all there together. And we can finish a sentence. It's uh, an incredible experience. I call it mind meld. I don't know. <laughs> so another name for that would be group flow, mm -hmm. where we're flowing as a group or as a, as a duo. But this community has this very sense of, of equal, of... Um, we're one community. We're, we're, we're like, we're brothers in that moment. Yeah, we're siblings. Mm -hmm. We're, we're mm -hmm. together. That community, that very strong affinity, is is something that that's characteristic. And again, so all uh, all these improvisers listening, we all know how it feels, but we've never actually tried to define it and try to explain it to non-improvisers. Right. And, and the whole idea is once we can we can we can um, you know conceptualizes and speak this, then we can train people toward that. Right. Because it's really hard to tell somebody who's never done improv how it feels to be in that flow. When you're, on, you're doing a scene and that other partner just completes your sentence or knows exactly where you're going. And, and, that's, and that is, yeah. I was gonna say, and that's part of our you know, philosophy of acceptance, uh, which exactly. I, th I think is very crucial. And what about learning the acceptance when you're training therapists? What are, what are some of the first things you do? I'd love to see your curriculum, but what are some of the first things you do when you're training therapists? Well, what you first need to do, you need to contextualize it in their clinical work. So some therapists, okay, like in Dan and Wiener's book, they'll go to improv training for fun. Mm -hmm. But for the most people, especially in the academy, they're not looking for that training. They want to, to advance as therapists. So first you need to, you need to give the, the contextual framing of why they should even do this. And up until now, there hasn't been really a lot of literature about that. Mm -hmm. So the first thing you do, you need to introduce the idea of play and spontaneity and collaborative tendencies, which are, these are all concepts that they're familiar with. But what, a lot of what I needed to do is, is to connect this, let's say, for instance, yes and, to uh, clinical literature that shows why collaborative tendency is good. Mm -hmm. We needed to find a way how to translate the idea of a bid, of an offer, right? The Keith Johnston mm -hmm. con concept that we all use. How does that, how do the therapists don't speak like that? They'll say a relational move. Okay, that's a clinical relational right. psychotherapy term. They call it a relational move. So first of all, you need to make these connections. And then what you do, you got to teach it. So the way I chose to teach it is, is an experiential learning model, which, which is composed of four components. One is collab is concrete experience, which means actual improv games, mm -hmm. like yes, let's um, sound ball, no, you didn't, you know, how dare you? I'm sorry. I mean, I'm sure we all have different names, but right. the the ones you'll do in any drop in improv class. Mm -hmm. The second part would be reflection. Ref okay, reflective mm -hmm. observation, where they they would work in, in trios and just talk for a few minutes. Then at home, and this is the crucial part for therapists, and I think for everyone, but especially for, for people that are taking improv into non-theatrical um, formats, is abstract conceptualization, which means taking their experience and connecting it to larger abstract ideas. 
And here where, here's where the reading comes, here where the clinical literature is. Here where they read Keith Johnston and then they read Freud. And then they read a Daniel Weiner, for instance, and then like you read someone else, Ringstrom, Philip Rimstrom. So it's all about helping them embed this experience in abstract conceptualization so they actually can take that to the last stage, which is active experimentations, where they would take that into their clinics, into their therapies, and try those skills out. Now what's important for me to say is Daniel Weiner's wonderful book, which I've mentioned has been a big inspiration. He uses those te improv techniques in his therapy. I chose to teach the skills and told the therapist, you keep practicing in whatever discipline you work, CBT, family therapy, mm -hmm. um, relational psychology. Just use these skills to, um, to add more spice, to add more flavor and spunk to your existing paradigms. Because I felt like that's going to have a better chance of lasting than telling people, do yes, let's with your clients, which I had very little um, belief that they would actually do. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And you've synthesized it so beautifully. You're an incredible writer, not to flatter you too much. But um, I'm thinking, you know, I've basically I have a private practice where I work with individuals. Um, I have some people on the uh, autism spectrum I work with. And uh, I think it's, it's a bit of a challenge when you're just doing one-on-one. -on -one. Do you have experiences with working one-on-one, -on -one, or did some of your students report back on working with one-on-one -on -one as opposed to groups work, and couples? So I work a lot also with one-on-ones. Um, I use it a lot. It would be more in um, once, once I got my head around these now moments and that um, the whole idea of, of these ruptures and repairs Right? Rupture is mm -hmm. when this now moment is like a something surprising, unexpected, even if it's not comfortable, mm -hmm. and the repair, the, the the bridging of that tear. So research shows that, that good therapies or good relationships are filled with ruptures and repairs. So now I'm much more I I feel more confident using my improvisation skills to to not only it sounds funny to generate, but also to generate now moments. Mm -hmm. And what really changes a person's um, implicit perception of the world are these ruptures and repairs, because these things don't go through his cognitive process and defense mechanisms. Because it's happening in the here and now, and it's unexpected, and it keeps him on his toes or mm -hmm. her toes, mm -hmm. and they need to adjust. So they're constantly needing to adjust the way they, they are when they're in relationships. And that, fine, that here and now uh, in vivo adjustments is what generates a larger repertoire and what heals and what makes a person grow and develop. So when I'm doing one-on-one -on -one work, I am very uh, conscious of that fact, and I'm making sure to keep the dialogue spontaneous, um, improvisational, since there are no mistakes, right? What right, about right, right. So I'm not afraid of going with what I'm feeling. So if I'm feeling bored or angry or I'm feeling like this person's not with me, I'm I'm using that much more, much more spontaneous and bold right. and I can say, okay, I'm not connected to you. What you're saying right now is really annoying or I'm really bored right now or, and I'm not saying it to insult him, but I'm, I'm, I'm you know, the rule, uh, say the thing in improv, that's mm -hmm. what I'm doing. I'm saying the thing. And if from what my experience in the last few years is that not only mine, but my clients as well, by saying the things, by keeping it very bold, they're actually um, increasing, and this is going to sound funny, their therapeutic charisma, mm -hmm. which is 
how salient are they in the session? Their sessions become more memorable, more effective, more piercing in the sense that clients leave the session like, wow, this was something, I went through something here. This was real. And all these things together, um, I can't prove this because I, I, future research needs to interview the clients. But my hypothesis is that increases the impact of the therapeutic encounter because um, this, the concept of therapeutic impact is connected, is composed of surprise, effort, challenge. And when you're in a co-created here and now improvisational dialogue, you can't really check out. And I'm talking about both parties, yeah? Right. And that takes effort. And when you're done with an hour of improv, imagine improvising for an hour. You are exhausted, but you're also very much alive and in tune and connected. And joyful. And joyful. joyful. So or even if it was, even ahead. if it was a, a rocky experience, but you went through something, like you exercised yourself. So when I got into improv about six years ago, I immediately saw the connection. I had been actually doing something called new games for about 25 years prior to improv, which is playful games, non-competitive, similar to theater games. And I immediately saw a connection. And what's so interesting to me is speaking with you and many other people who've been doing the work and making studies, and it's an incredible movement that's happening internationally, really. Listen, I, I, I feel like we're going into, and there's two parallel um, kind of directions happening. There's over-specialization on one hand and interdisciplinary studies on the other hand. I feel like the pendulum has sw swung so to the extreme of over-specialization um, is that we're missing out because our clients are becoming more and more um, rounded people because of the internet and their general knowledge. Mm -hmm. And it, us as the helping professions are getting more and more specialized. And there's this gap that's growing between the helping professional and the client. And I feel like the next evolution is going to be also in 21st century leadership and in emotional intelligence is flexibility, is exactly. collaborative yeah. tendency, is improvisational skills. Whether you call it a leader, a helper, a facilitator, a therapist, a teacher. So I guess my long-term vision would be to, to create courses improv for lawyers, improv for doctors, improv for priests, improv for educators, obviously. The skill set can be applied, but I think what's really important is because improv has like a, a reputation of being like, whose line is it anyway? There's a lot of work to make improv a legitimate uh, discipline and art form that has rules and guidelines. And I feel like this Chicago conference is going to be a very big uh, step in that direction. Absolutely. Now, getting back to the training that you're providing therapists is really about how, how, helping them to be more spontaneous, more natural, more in the moment, yes. more real. But what about actual games? Do any of your uh, students, or do you, actually use regular games in sessions? So this is an interesting question because, I mean, even though I have a diploma in psychodrama, and I, I teach play, I've been teaching playback theater for a decade now, I don't really do improv games per se. I'm from, I mean, I see more of the dialogue as being the scene. So I'll be doing different kinds of bids, and I'll be doing blind offers and specific offers and vague offers, the whole you know, Keith Johnson terminology, which do I need to explain, or do we know that? Is that... Well, you can explain for the listeners, please, OK? OK, so um, a offer is anything I do on stage, right? So Keith Johnson named three kinds of offers. Specific offers, which is the here, what, when, and where. Hey, Grandma, thanks for coming to my birthday party. 
A vague offer just gives a general direction but doesn't say who we are. For instance, watch out. Okay? Mm -hmm. And the blind offer is an offer that has no meaning behind it, which is kind of like the freeze game, where I just do a freeze and the partner works with that. So those kinds of ideas I'll use in my um, verbal psychotherapy that I offer. Interesting. I, I won't stand up and start doing yes, let's or presence or any of those games. Just because, I, um, A, I feel that the clients that come to me are not looking, that's not kind of in our contract. I think if I was a psychodramatist or a drama therapist or a movement therapist or a, even a play therapist with kids, I feel like I would do that more. Mm -hmm. um, plus, I, feel, I guess it's also, if I'm really honest with myself, I guess the socialization I went as a therapist has, was so strict that I just never found the need or the, the gusto to do it there. I understand. But the truth is, I feel very satisfied and playful, and I'm seeing the results even without getting them up from chairs and playing yes, let's. Because it's enough that I can give them a blind offer, I mean, a vague offer like, um, you know, like uh, I'll say something like, I'll, suddenly, I'll stand up and I'll say something like, change directions. Talk about something else. Mm -hmm. For me, that's an improv game. Mm -hmm. um, or in couples therapy, like getting your, you know, getting your partner in trouble. So I'll, I can say to the client saying, uh, you're not looking at your husband. Say that again and look at your husband. Or complete the following sentence. Uh, what I'm not telling you is so these are like, these are basically improv games. Right. I just don't call it improv. Right. But it has the same effect of, it raises the stakes in the room, makes everyone more real, more present, it adds an element of high risk, high gain. Mm -hmm. And I must admit that after doing it for a few years, I can't go back anymore. Right. So I it's, can't go back, yeah. Go back to, sorry. No, I can't go back anymore just going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tell me more about that. Right. I can't. Well, now, let me and ask you, I want to ask you a specific yeah. question about Carl Rogers and acceptance. Do you see a connection right. with there? Some people say no, but I, I, I was trained as a humanist initially and then psychodynamically. I've been trained in many different methods. Eclectic is my term, I guess. But I, I find Carl Rogers and his unconditional positive regard very similar to improv philosophy. Well, this is really interesting because I feel like um, con like in parallel to the improv training, I've been really going into relational psychotherapy, and my new thing is uh, it's called the crucible therapy. Kind of the very, um, which the whole philosophy is that the room should be a hot place, not a safe um, kind of nurturing room. Which I find really interesting because, on one hand, I like the positive, unconditional positive regard, although I feel that sometimes um, when it's I mean, I love the SN philosophy, but I also like pushing the story forward, follow right. the fear. Right. And I feel like a lot of times when I'm unconditionally positive regard, I'm not following the fear and I'm not pushing my clients. And, um, and I know this is my style also as an improviser. I like the bold offers. I like to push the story forward. Because mm -hmm. I'm reminding you the definition of blocking, by the way. This is interesting enough. What do we usually think of blocking, Margo? What, what's the classic uh, definition of blocking? You mean like clinical resistance? Or no, talking like about in improv? improv. In, yeah, improv. in improv. Oh, saying no, uh, not paying attention, blocking the scene. 
so here's this. So what I discovered in my research, which is really funny, because going back to the basics of Keith Johnson's improv, one of the versions of blocking is slowing down the action. Hmm. So let's rob a bank. Wait, wait, I don't have my gun on me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's a form of blocking. So what's interesting enough is I feel like a lot of times um, one of the ways therapists block is by not, you know, pushing to the, let's, what happens, you know? Let's, let's see what happens. Let's talk about the real issue. You, you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So sometimes saying yes and is actually saying, okay, so let's talk about this divorce. Are you guys going to talk about it now? Let's talk about the depression that you've been hinting about. Or let's talk about why the fact that you've been late for the last three sessions. Let's, let's, let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. So I love the, the unconditional positive regard, but I think the, the more I'm in this business, the more I'm realizing that you need to add a little bit of heat. You need to raise the stakes a little bit. The, there's and, a, al- and also think, think about an improv scene, right? Mm-hmm. We want to see an improv scene where the, the stakes are raised. Or if, if I quote uh, Jimmy Karen, who you've interviewed, mm-hmm. in his very good book, Improvising Better, he talks about a nice people doing nice things equals boring scenes. Right. Right. And I, that book has been also very influential on my thought. Um, so you can't always be nice. You, sometimes you need to be bold. There's. And you need to. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was going to say there's a, a little intervention I use. Uh, Bob Newhart did this very funny video. It's called Stop yeah. It. Okay. <laughs> Stop it. Okay. Stop it. Yeah. I so that. that's funny. I assign it to certain clients, and then after I've assigned it, I use it in session. When they're saying something, they're just going on and on. I just go, Stop it. And it takes the energy away for a moment. And it's one of those moments, perhaps an aha moment, where they stop. And that works? Yeah, it works. It works great. That is hilarious. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. That's, great. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And I do mirroring with some people as well, like people on the spectrum who have affect difficulties. So I, right. I use that as well. But what you're doing is so fantastic. It's, it's wonderful. But let me go off of your work for a minute and ask you about what do you really like to do the best? Is it teaching? Is it acting? Is it improv? Is it being a daddy? Well, I'm a, I consider myself a multi-potentialite. I don't know yes. if people saw the TED Talk. But um, for me, I really can't do any one of the three. I think also, if I'm really honest with myself, my, my, my gift is the combination. Uh, I love improv. I know I'm not the best improviser. I know I'm not the best therapist. I'm, I'm not, I know I'm not the best facilitator. But my gift is the, all three. So for me, it's really the combination. I mean, I need two days a week in the clinic, two, three days, just to keep me grounded. To keep, it's like my gym. I need to perform, but not too much that I get all narcissists. I mean, mm-hmm. I need that balance. I wouldn't be able to do any one of these three, teaching, performing, or therapy. I couldn't do it exclusively. I would go crazy. No, I wouldn't go crazy. I would be bored. Right. And I would burn out. And I think what gives me that the... the the, the zest and the enjoyment is the fact that I can, you know, one day, you know, uh, one day a week I'm sitting in my, in my clinic and then the other day I'm, you know, I'm performing in front of an audience. And the other day I'm working with therapists on improvisation. So. Multi-potent, multi 
How do you pronounce multipotentialite. Multipotentialite. I love that term. I, I can identify that. I, was, I think most of the people that are listening to your podcast are probably multipotentialite. I, I think they are. I was thinking today, I, I just uh, had an interview with Bernie DeCoven, who is one of the founders of the play movement here in the States, the New Games okay. Foundation, and which I was okay. doing, I think, before you were born. But um, okay. So I was doing a lot of games and play for a long, long time. And I was thinking about, you know, the book, The... Um, the path, the road less traveled. Well, I was thinking yeah, yeah. about the road we traveled and how all the different little experiences in our life lead us. They might seem inconsequential at the time. They might not seem related, but they all start to synthesize, like your story, where you came from and how you got into various things, to where we are today. So, well, I think I think these people. I mean, I I know for me, I didn't have any role models who did what I did. And it was a very long, lonely road, always swimming uphill, always seeing the ugly duckling, because wherever I am, I was never really part of. When I'm with improvisers, I'm a therapist. When I'm a therapist, I'm an improviser. You understand? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think for people that are, are between the disciplines, that's really hard. And that's, I mean, only when I really saw that TED Talk, it clicked that because I didn't have any role models and because I wasn't as good as the specialists, specialists are the people that are good at one thing and they excel in that. So I think that's where a lot of people like us you know, burn out or fall between the chairs or lose hope or settle. And I think this, this is a really good message, and I hope that these people can hear this podcast and realize there is a genre of people like that. They're just between disciplines. And it's hard to measure, <laughs> to, to compare. I mean, there's no role models. It's hard to compare yourself to them. It's hard to find them. And I really hope that this Chicago conference will let people um, – people like that meet. Well, and I think it's just the beginning. We're just, this is our very first conference. There's a lot of excitement. And I think by the fifth year, we'll be sold out. That's what I'm visualizing <laughs> for us. I mean, I really, really do. Uh, yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. So uh, any future plans right now? You're working on anything specific or? So I think that, well, I'm waiting for the, I mean, I have the dissertation, so I'm waiting to get final, you know, I have to it back and do some uh, comments. I, I'm waiting for two more papers. I'm working on a new paper called The Ninja Therapist, mm -hmm. which is a con the ninja the ninja actor is a, is a is a terminology I've developed for improvisers, which it's too long to discuss, so we won't talk about it this time. The next but you got you got an uh, article on your website about it, don't you? Yeah, I have it about the ninja actors, and now I've done the adaptation for therapists. Okay, because and we'll be referring to your website. Yeah. Yeah, please. And the next step is um, I'm going to start, I'm started working on a book called Practical Improvisation, Improvisations for Educators, Artists, and Therapists. And the whole idea is to take the improvisation guidelines or the ones at least I find most relevant and make them accessible for these different disciplines. So instead of taking an improv book, like taking Keith Johnson as an educator, I want educators to have an access to improvisation that's already digested and presented in ways that they can use as well as therapists. Right. But I want to have it in one book because I have this vision of, of bringing these people together, these healthy professions together to speak one language with different applications of it. Um, and that I'm doing in the context of my institute that I've launched, which is called Potential State. And Potential State is an idea from child psychotherapy, which is the space between reality and fantasy. That's where we experience play, love, belief, imagination. So I try to create potential spaces and let people grow in those spaces. Because, and, I'll, and this is kind of my 
elevator pitch because therapy, art, and education are the same. They all work toward the same goal, which is change and growth. And the vehicle they do it is through here and now. Well said. Well said. Well, we're starting to run out of time for today, but I'm hoping <laughs> that um, that uh, you will be able to do another interview with me, perhaps in Chicago honor. or uh, that'd be great, or on international time zones. And uh, your your work is wonderful, and I've learned so much more today about your work and about you. I'm very grateful that we've met, and we'll be sharing a cab ride pretty soon in Chicago. Yay! <laughs> Yay! And do you have any advice or words that you would like to say to somebody who's a therapist who's thinking about thinking about this improv thing? I think if if you're feeling that something that you're not bringing your whole self to, to work, and if you if the session starts, you're like, oh, you get this little knot in your stomach. That means you're not enjoying it. And, and there's, I'm just going to quote Nachmanovich, who wrote, who wrote an amazing book called uh, Play. Um, um, so he says, um, psychotherapy is play. Now, what's the difference between play and game? Game is the set of rules, and there's a winner, right? Mm -hmm. Psychotherapy can be experienced as a game. It, it is a game, right? There are rules, and mm -hmm. the point of the game is to help the client grow. But when you can infuse the play into the game, because play is a state of mind. Right. There's no point in play. You can, you can do game without play. But you, you understand? You can, right. you, can, you can do Monopoly and not enjoy it. Right, you right. can do psychotherapy and hate it. So the whole idea is to infuse play into game. So if you're hearing this or if you're feeling like therapy is becoming more and more of a game and less and less of play, then realize that, A, that's natural and human and b it's time for you to reconnect to your play and from my experience i feel like um improv theater improv whether it's long form or short form doesn't really matter can help you connect to that play and then to bring that play into the game and now that people are doing more and more research this is not a hippie new age right. kind of right. idea this has been clinically proven this has been taught in, ac in the academy this is real and it works so get up, get off your couch, and go to the Nick Deer studio and start playing. And start playing. Well, you're an inspiration to me. Your enthusiasm and joy is just contagious, and I really look forward to seeing you soon and having another chat with you. So thank you yes. so much for your time. I and, just and tell my pleasure. And tell people that if they want to read more of the articles, it's all on my website, which is www.potentialstate.com. And I'm sure it's also going to be on your website or whatever next to the podcast. But yeah. uh, read it and be in touch with me. And I'm really looking for like dialogue. And I'm happy to meet other multi-potentialites and play and brainstorm. That'd and you're, you're very accessible. I want to say that to our listeners, too. You've been very accessible to me, and I appreciate it. And I guess it's almost bedtime where you are. Uh, well, it took me an hour to get the kids down, so now, now it's mommy and daddy's. Uh, we get we, we get some play time before we crash. Wonderful. Sleep. Well, enjoy your play, and thank you again so, so much. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. -bye.